Welcome to the Elm City Church Podcast. As a community of people who are trying to practice the way of Jesus together, we hope that these messages inspire and equip you for the journey of faith in everyday life. But I don't know if you've noticed this, but every year, usually around Easter, there's usually kind of a flurry of articles, memes, you know, History Channel documentaries. So apparently some people still watch that show. Uh, that's set out to disprove the historicity of Jesus and Christianity as a whole. Have you ever noticed that? Kind of leading up to it, there always seems like there's this flurry of, of things. Or they either try to separate the historical Jesus from the Jesus of the Bible. And one of the claims that is often made, there's several, but one of them is basically that uh, Jesus is just a copycat myth of some of the other ancient myths. Uh, you know, there's something the Jews, the Jews took, and never mind the fact that of all people in the history of the world, the Jews would be the least likely group of people to uh, copy pagan myths and then later uh, give up their lives dying that it's true. But we'll lay that aside for a second right now. But here is one of the claims, and uh, maybe you've seen some version of this. It might make its way around the internet around Easter again this year. It's this. They'll, they'll, they'll take four or five ancient Greek, ancient myths and compare them to Jesus. So, uh, Horus is an Egyptian god, uh, from around 3000 BC. And supposedly, Horus was born December 25th, born of a virgin, and, uh, there was a star in the east before he was born. He was worshiped by three kings. Uh, he was a teacher of 12 and uh, was baptized and started a public ministry with 12 disciples. Sounds a little familiar. Um, and then another one is Attis. He's a Greek god of 1200 BC and he was supposedly born of a virgin on December 25th, was crucified, was dead for three days, and then resurrected. Noticing a couple other similarities. Dionysus, a Greek god from 500 BC, was supposedly born of a virgin. Born on December 25th, performed miracles, was hailed as the king of kings, alpha and omega, and was resurrected. And then we'll go to a different part of the world, uh, Krishna from India, you know, around 900 BC, born of a virgin, star in the east, performed miracles, resurrected. And then we have uh, this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, Israel, 30 AD, born of a virgin, star in the east, performed miracles, dead for three days, resurrected. How many when they just, maybe if this is the first time you've ever encountered that, how many you're just like, for just for a fleeting second, uh-oh, oh no. Uh, in most versions, here's how the critique goes, and it's usually, we'll see, uh, pretty sloppy, but they'll say this. The critique is, there's nothing original about Jesus. He's sort of just a sloppy copy and paste job of superstitious people who ignorantly believe this stuff. They might have been well-intentioned. Christianity certainly teaches some good truths. But at most, Jesus was a good teacher that never claimed to be God and actually didn't do miracles. His followers added all that stuff during the second and third century. That is the critique. Uh, could that be true? We'll see. Now, I know I, personally, I'm a skeptic by nature. I can't turn it off. It has its pros and its cons. And there have been many times where I've wrestled with this stuff. If you have never wrestled with this stuff, you need to. 
It's important. Uh, untested faith is weak. Not that I'm saying you go around and just doubt for the sake of doubting. Um, but you, we, you should, we should wrestle with, with, with these things, if for nothing else, to help other people who are wrestling with them. Um, you know, how do we know this doesn't all get made up? It isn't a bunch of cleverly devised stories. You know, I had a certain, uh, she was seven at the time, who I won't name, asked me this question. Dad, how do we know any of this is true? What if somebody just started telling people stories and the people who heard it really liked them? And that person decided to write them down and then somebody put it in a book and people started buying it and made money and that's why they kept doing it. How do we know that's not true? That's not what happened. It's like, that is a great question. Junior high is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> Again, if you've never wrestled with that, you should. Because if this is all made up or just sort of like like a based on a real story but not really true, then what are we doing here? Why are we just none of what we're doing makes any sense. You should be at brunch. You should be doing something else. Join the Rotary Club. Do something else. If this is not true, why are we here? And again, why are we so and then as followers of Jesus, why are we so concerned that this is actually true? Because if this is made up, I really don't think this is a, I mean, this is a decent use of time for community building, but why in the world would we try to live out the hard truths of the Bible, or try to pattern our lives after Jesus, or try to do the hard things like he commands us to do in the Sermon on the Mount? This only has value, ultimately, if it's true. If it is not true, even the Apostle Paul says, we of all people here right now are the most to be pitied. Uh, the person who has helped me the most in this area and wrestling through these questions is C.S. Lewis. Do you have any C.S. Lewis fans in the house? All right, cool. Hopefully by uh, next week, everyone will be raising their hands. C.S. Lewis, he, for me, why he was so effective was because he combined understanding of theology, of myth, and of culture in a way that I felt it was unparalleled. I mean, he, he was, he is the, he, I did my almost, I did my, uh, you know, master's thesis on on C.S. Lewis and and his view of, of myth. And before coming to Christianity, C.S. Lewis just kind of looked at it as just myths, sort of like all the other myths. He, he called himself a dinosaur because he was, in his opinion, he's probably right, was one of the last few people to read every single one of the Greek, Roman, and Norse myths in their original languages. So he read all of them. He didn't just read about people who write about them. He read every single one of them. And he was an expert on myth. And he had this problem, though, when he came to Christianity that he couldn't get past. And it was this. He goes, I know myth. This does not read like myth. And even when he was an atheist, he had this quote that I, some version of, when I read about it, I almost believe this stuff actually happened. Um, this was, be, this was before, before he came, he came to faith. But this is what I find really interesting and how it applies to us here and now. Do you know who's making these exact same claims? That, you know, most of Christianity was based on cleverly devised myths? It is the opponents that Peter is writing against in our letter this morning, in Second Peter. In fact, some of those myths I put up, uh, because they all predate Jesus, what I found so fascinating was, 
Literally, Peter could have been talking about the exact same stories that we're confronted with a few thousand years later. Because there's a lot, this was an area where there's a lot of Greek thought. They knew the Greek gods well. And when he says, starts off with, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Like he was probably talking about the Dionysus myth and some of these other ones that were widely spread in that culture at the time. Here we are, 2,000 years later, and those are still going around on, not, not still on the internet. I think that's a newer invention. <laughs> but, uh, we're still faced with those things today. And, um, listen to what Peter says. I'll read our two, three of the verses, um, for this morning. He says this, talking about, uh, one specific area of theology, basically the whole story in general. This is in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, and it's this. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard that very voice born from the mountain, for we were with him on the mountain. We were there. We saw it. We heard it. Um, and so this is what, how it ties again specifically to our passage was this morning is the teachers weren't just saying that all of Christianity was a myth. What they're saying was the second coming of Jesus was just sort of a made up story to kind of control people's behavior. So you Christians for 30, 40 years have been saying, Jesus is coming back. It's going to happen. Uh, and where is he? He's not here. And what they were also doing was they were twisting some of the letters of Paul that talked about grace. You see at the very end of Second Peter, when he says, like, basically, hey, Paul's letters are pretty hard to understand. So it should make you feel better when you're reading them. Even Peter's admitting sometimes reading Paul is kind of hard to understand. But they were saying, they were taking this whole idea of grace and twisting it and saying, you know what? Grace covers everything. doesn't really matter what you do. There's no second coming. There's no final judgment. There's, there's none of that. So therefore, live how you want. And, you know, and what they were doing is making an excuse. We'll see in chapter two, which if you've read second Peter chapter two is going to be a doozy <laughs> to teach through. But you're in chapter two is they were just making an excuse for their immoral lifestyle. Cause it's way easier to change what you believe than how you behave. I've met so many people that's like, their beliefs suddenly change, and it's like, well, because, you know, this, I, I, I want to do this. So it's way easier just to change, my, change what I believe than kind of submit myself to the lordship of Jesus. But what Peter just got done talking about for several verses was, hey, we need to make every effort to live a life of godliness. Because God has saved us and has transformed us and is moving us in this direction, we need to, how we live in the here and now truly matters. How we live in the here and now is not just a bonus add-on to following Jesus. He said it is actually the proof that this is sunk down and is real. And so these false teachers that are saying like, nah, that doesn't matter. Live however you want. He says, do not follow them because you're going to follow them down a road to destruction. And Second Peter is in your face. He's not mincing words. We're talking about matters of eternity. We're talking about real stuff. And this is why Peter was so passionate about it. So this morning, in the time that I have, uh, 
Peter really makes two arguments, that the second coming and kind of the end days is real. And the two arguments are, one, he appeals to history. He appeals to like actual moments to say, this happened. And then he also appeals to the reliability of Scripture. So next week, we're going to talk about the reliability of Scripture. But even specifically highlighting, as we're highlighting, you know, the college and all you college students, it, it's, gonna, it's often a very... I think there's some challenging things about the Scriptures when you're, when, when, you're try, when you're trying to unpack it. But there's often a lot of lazy critique of the Bible. That, uh, you know, this is not, you know, th- one thing, this is not a book, it's a library. And it's made up of 66 different writings from different parts of the world, through it's written in three languages, and uh, it all lines up. And, and we have so much manuscript evidence that gives us incredible amount of confidence that what we have here matches up what, with what was originally written. We'll find things like, because again, it's not, these letters would be written and then they'd be copied and then they'd be dispersed. And so you'd have one fragment of a letter that was found like over, you know, way over here in, you know, Turkey or someplace. Then you'll find one that's dated like from a hundred years later, found in a totally different part of the world. And you match them up and you're like, they say the exact same thing. Like, it's not, or for the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of the other things, we, we, we found like what we thought was our oldest manuscripts. Then they found some older ones that were predated them by like a thousand years. And they were basically identical. If you compare the scriptures against any other work in antiquity, the amount of manuscript evidence we have is like embarrassingly strong compared to anything else. Uh, and so you can, you know, have your issues with scripture, whether you believe it or not, but it's almost as ironclad as it can be that what we have in our hands, especially the New Testament, was what the original authors wrote. It wasn't doctored. It wasn't changed. This will hold up to very serious scrutiny. And you should have, you should have confidence in that. But I want to help, you know, help you a little bit because Peter's saying again, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. This is true. You know, the, the and this is eventually what got, what I said, what got C.S. Lewis. He read it, he's like, this is, and it was, I mean, outside of obviously the Holy Spirit changing him, all that, but he read it, he was just convinced, you know, listen, um, Here's one quick example of, again, how different you know, these cleverly devised myths read than the Bible. So Dionysus, the one that was supposedly basically a carbon copy of Jesus. Here's that was a born of a virgin on the 25th before miracles. Da, da, da. Here's how the myth, well, a very condensed version of the myth actually reads. So Dionysus was conceived out of an affair between Zeus and a mortal named Semele. And uh, Zeus's wife found out, was not super pleased about it, and uh, tricked Zeus into showing Semele his glory, which he knew would kill her, would, would, uh, would, would kill Semele. And so Zeus was able to rescue Dionysus by sewing him into his thigh and, um, until he was born. So right off the bat, I'm noticing a few differences. It might not quite be as uh, ironclad as before, but that charge is so overblown. They are nothing like it. Look at how the birth story of Jesus is told compared to that. Look at all of the basically unnecessary specific details. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus 
that all the world should be registered. Now, this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. I would say that reads just a bit different. And that is how the New Testament reads, which is why over and over the writers of the New Testament keep appealing back to history and saying, this happened. This actually happened. So John, who was another person that was with Jesus uh, in the transfiguration, um, that, that moment we read about earlier, this is how he, uh, this is how he starts off one of his letters. He goes this way. He goes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the, this word of life, this life was made manifest or made known to us, and we have seen it. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. What's John saying? He's appealing to every sense. I have seen it. I have heard it. I have, I, I touched Jesus. John was the one at, you know, at the Last Supper. My head was leaned back on him. And as he was talking, I could hear his heartbeat. And, and so, so for me, if you're struggling with, with your faith this morning, listen, one, I would say that's okay. Like, don't feel shame. Because I think all of us have wrestled. I, I, I've wrestled with my faith. I've wrestled with, is this real? How do we know we can trust it? Like, you should think those things through. But here is the thing that has always gotten me. Always help bring me back in, the, in, the, in, these, in these moments of difficulty. It's this. It is the historicity of the New Testament and the claims of Jesus that I feel like cannot the most logical explanation, even with all the miraculous, the most logical explanation when you kind of compare it against everything, all the other alternatives, is that it really happened. Is that Jesus really was who he claimed he was? That he really died and was buried and really rose again three days, three, three days later. And how this applies today. And because of that, he is really coming back. That is the appeal that they are making. Because this is not something that happened in a faraway world where no one knew about it. This happened at Passover in Jerusalem. And we can narrow the date down to pretty sure which one or two Passovers we think it actually happened at. At Passover, there was 100,000 plus extra Jews that would pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was a public trial under Pontius Pilate. He was, he, he was given a official, like, death by Roman crucifixion. He was buried in a known location. There was prophecy saying this would happen. Jesus said this would happen. And three days later, he rose again. How do we know that? Because all of his followers, who we have their accounts, several independent accounts, all said, this happened, we saw it, it changed my life, and I'm willing to die for it. You do not get people to die for a known lie. Plenty of people have died for what they don't know to be wrong. Like People die for lies all the time. People don't die for something they know is wrong. Specifically, not all of them. That is always what has brought me back. But you know what? Ultimately, though, that is not what brought me to Jesus. 
What brought me to Jesus is because the love of God captured my heart. What, what, what I hope, and then that, so this is what rebrings me back and gives me confidence. But the ultimate thing that brought me to Jesus and changed me is not because someone laid out this beautiful apologetic reasoning. I'm like, all right, you win. You're a better arguer. I will now submit my life to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That's not how it happened. The love of God captured my heart. And when you look at Peter and James and John and all of these people, do you know what drew them to Jesus in the beginning? Jesus said, hey, come, follow me. Hey, you, who kind of everyone is cast off as not being kind of worthy to be a disciple of anyone famous, I think you have what it takes. Because I'm going to be involved in your life, and I'm going to change you. So come and follow me. And then they followed him, and they messed up, and they made a mess of things. And at the biggest moment ever, they denied they even knew him. And what did Jesus do? Restores them, loves them, calls them to him. Because that's what God is like. And that is what ultimately has captured my heart and I hope captures your heart. That that is why we follow him. And yeah, oh, by the way, <laughs> this is all real. And, there are, and there's so much good evidence to back it up. Which is why Peter, writing to this church to encourage them, is saying, we didn't follow myths. We were there. The second coming is going to happen. And the argument Peter makes is because I got a sneak preview of it. He's like, I got the trailer version of the movie that was to come. Because up on that mountain, for a moment, Jesus' glory was sort of revealed. His face shone, his clothes shone. It's, I think it's one of those events. Have you ever had a dream? And it's very real in that dream. And it all makes sense. And you wake up and try to explain it to somebody. And you're like, no, it wasn't like, it was kind of like that. Not, I think that's what this event is a little bit like. But they're like, we saw what the Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the King of the universe, he, he just kind of peeled it back for a minute. And he, and he, and he pointed back to that. He said, that's why we know Jesus is coming back. That's why we know that there will one day be a day when all wrong will be, will be made right and all wrongs will be judged. So we're not making this up. This is not a scare tactic to control your behavior. This is real. And for followers of Jesus, that day, that, you know, Armageddon, Judgment Day, was always a day of hope that they would look forward to. Because they would be vindicated. Because the God that they served, even though it looked like things were puny and was going to make all things right. And then it was always put as a warning to those who were opposing God in the way of Jesus, saying, hey, listen, there will be a day. No one gets away with anything. Think even as the, as the Christians right now, and you, as, they're, as they're praying and you're reading it, one of the, I think one of the things that kind of gives them, gives them confidence is knowing that God is in control. God is in, in, in control, and then may, maybe we might not be able to make sense of it now, but eventually one day no one gets away with anything. Either Jesus takes on the penalty of your sins, or you do. The, those are the only options. And so Peter, again, appealing, says, how do I know this to be true? From history. I saw it. I have seen the risen Jesus. And the next week we'll talk about, oh, and, by the, and the reliability of Scripture. The story is true. It is real. And I know for me, not only does it give me confidence it's true, but I need it to be true. I need this story to be true. It Not only does it resonate deep down in my soul, but again, this I like... 
If this world was just all time and chance and might makes right, that, this would be a very depressing time. We would not have hope. It would be fictional, imaginary hope. You know, the most we could do is band together and sing a terrible version of Imagine and put it out on the internet. Like, you see that, I'm like, oh, thanks. That really does nothing. Um, but this is real. We should have confidence in it. And I want to read two things, again, from pastor, pastors in Ukraine. Like, you know why they can have courage and boldness right now? Because they believe it's true and not just something like made up to spiritually help them become a better person and give them a couple of life hacks and make their life easier. No, they have confidence that the God of the universe knows them and loves them and they have been placed in this moment to share and reflect his love in the midst of chaos. Let me read, let me read two things as, as, as I close that just, it's like, man, I want to have this attitude. This is a, from a pastor who says, please pray about Russian Christians. They would raise their prayers and their voices towards the Russian government to stop the aggression, that they would not keep silent. Please pray for the Western governments of the U.S. and the EU. But he said this, finally, please pray about the Ukrainian Christians, that we will serve and live as a community of hope in the full sense of this term, and that during these terrible times, we would invite more and more people to the relationship with God and his children, to the relationship of love and hope and encouragement and support, that our minds and characters would continue to transform into the character of Jesus Christ. That sounds like some good Second Peter preaching right there. And this was a guy, a pastor, who was preparing his sermon for this week. And this is the the the, the thing that I want to that I want to end with. That our hope, not just in this situation, but in general, is when when this fill in the blank with whatever you want this to be. When this is over, you know, the citizens of Kiev or Keen, or wherever we're at, we'll remember how Christians responded to people in their time of need. Because we will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, and mend the broken, and as we do, we're going to offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. How good is that? And you can do that when you know this is true. We hope this message has been impactful. For more information about how you can connect with Elm City Church, visit elmcitychurch.com or follow us on social media. We'd love to help you take some next steps.